Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I am your host, Sher Ali Tareem. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his splendid new book, Teaching Humanity, an Alternative Introduction to Islam, Vernon Schubel makes a compelling case for taking seriously the foundational importance of humanity and moral pedagogy to the venture of Islam, especially in relation to introductory books on this topic. Through a finely layered yet always engaging and accessible examination of a panoply of Muslim intellectual traditions and lived practice, Shubal offers an alternative to introductory textbooks on Islam, limited in their conceptual purview to Islamic law, theology, and the textual sources of the tradition. One of the hallmarks of this book is that it focuses substantively on Shi'i Islam and Sufism, especially in contexts like the Alevi Bektashi tradition that might be relegated to the margins of Islam in dominant introductory surveys of Islam. Indeed, among the major achievements of this beautifully written book is that it fundamentally reorients our understanding of the center and the margins of Islam. Here now is my conversation with Professor Vernon Shubal. Welcome, Vernon, uh, to the New Books Network and to New Books in Islamic Studies. It's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, speak to us about your fascinating, wonderful, and really pressing uh, new book, Teaching Humanity, an Alternative Introduction to Islam, that we'll get into in a moment. Uh, Vernon, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical, and you, of course, go into this in the book as well, in the opening section of the book, a really fascinating story. Uh, But I think since this is your first time on the New Books Network, uh, could you share a bit with our listeners how you became a scholar of Islam, a brief uh, biographical note we can begin with? Yeah, okay. It's, uh, it's you know, it's an interesting story, and it's a long time ago because, you know, I went to college in 1969, uh, and that was at a time when uh, uh, there was a powerful countercultural strand going on in America, even where I went to college at Oklahoma State University. And, uh, you know, like lots of people of my generation, uh, I got interested in Asian religions and in non-Western things in general uh, because of the Beatles, because of uh, their trip to, uh, to, to Rishikesh, because of uh, George Harrison playing the sitar. Uh, and if you think about it, you know, it was really after World War II when for the first time uh, that had become something that people uh, outside of uh, the, the Asian diaspora community were, were, were being exposed to. Uh, but as I point out in the book, Islam was never really at the center of that. But, uh, you know, to be completely honest about it, one of the things that happened was is that I got a hold of books by uh, Idris Shah, uh, who wrote very idiosyncratic books about the Sufi tradition. Uh, and uh, those got me interested uh, in Islam, 
But still, my main interest was in Buddhism and Hinduism and those sorts of things. And I took an amazing course with a woman named Hila Converse who had grown up in Lahore in the 1930s. And when time came in the Indian in the South Asian religions course to talk about uh, Islam, I thought, well, I know what this is going to be about. This is going to be, I know what Islam is. It's a legalistic religion. It has a very much a Protestant sort of God who sits apart from humanity and judges them. But she started with two images. One was the Taj Mahal, describing how the Taj Mahal was designed according to the images of the Garden of Paradise uh, in the Quran. And the other were images of the Urs of Muwenadin Chishti. And it was my first exposure to the fact that within Islam, there was color and festivals and music and devotional ecstasy things that I just did not expect to find there at all. Uh, and that's what really got me excited about learning about Islam. I decided actually that day that I was going to study Urdu, I was going to go to South Asia, and I was going to in some way encounter uh, the Islam that I had seen in those images. Terrific. I thought one good way to begin our conversation about the book, uh, which often is the case, but in this case, especially the title really indexes the main argument, the main uh, orientation and the kind of case that you make in the book. And the title, of course, is Teaching Humanity. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit about both the idea of teaching and the idea of humanity, uh, the centrality of those concepts to this book, and how does that connect with the main kind of push that you make in this book about what an introductory uh, book on Islam uh, should look like? Well, 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 certainly. I mean, you know, I, I grew up entirely in, you know, white suburban America. I don't think I knew any Muslims at all until I got to, to, to college when I was, you know, I started a little bit early. I was 16 years old, but uh, I had a notion of uh, Islam that was uh, completely different than what finally happened when I finally got to Pakistan and saw that devotional allegiance to people who were considered in some way holy, uh, whether it was Imam Hussein and the processions for Imam Hussein, or the, uh, the, the, the huge numbers of people who would show up every Thursday night at major shrines, uh, and who would show up for Urs for uh, Sufi Aulia. And it was not, uh, it was something that I knew about before I got there, because I had read about these things existing, but they always felt like they were peripheral, because all of those things, particularly the things about the Suf about Sufism, were always put in the last two chapters of an introductory book. The, the Islam's uh, books were always focusing on Sharia as the center of Islam. Uh, and now the title of my book uh, comes, of course, from uh, the Surah 96 in the Quran, which says, you know, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, recite in the name of your Lord who created humanity from a clot, recite. And the idea here is that the Quran states in the very first surah that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad that the point of this revelation was to teach humanity, that there was a relationship between human beings and the Creator, which was one that was at least in part about being student and teacher. And of course, the pun doesn't work completely in Arabic, but it does in English. Uh, that the notion of Islam as a religion that is about teaching humanity also includes the notion of teaching one 
how to become a human being. And I began to focus on the notion of insania or humanity, meaning uh, human virtue, uh, that there are certain virtues to being a human being. And one of the things that religion and in particular Islam is supposed to do is to enable and encourage human beings to become fully human. That's really the center of what I'm getting at here. I'm moving away. Not, I'm not denying the theocentricness of Islam at all, because as I state early on, Tawheed is still the most important concept in Islam. But the whole point, you know, I, I think it was Fazlur Rahman who pointed out that what's the point of revelation if there's not uh, uh, a reason that God is speaking to humanity? Human beings have an incredibly important part in the cosmos in every reading of Islam that I'm aware of. Uh, and I'm particularly, you know, for, for a long time I was studying the Alevi tradition in Turkey, uh, and there's a, a, a very popular uh, Alevi nefis song that, that says, insan uh, uh, I have come to become a human being. We are here in the cosmos in order to become human. Or as I talk about in the last chapter, uh, there is a hadith that says, I created everything for you and you for me, meaning God created the universe because there had to be a place that could support humanity. But he created humanity because humanity has a special relationship. Uh, and so that's what's at the core of this. It's a reorienting of how we look at Islam to talk about the importance of humanity. And also the final meaning of teaching humanity is a humanity that teaches. In other words, who are the teachers? Uh, the emphasis in Islam on uh, devotion and love for those teachers, which of course begin with the prophets, but also include the Shi'i Imams, Sufi Aliyah, and other figures whose role is uh, to uh, teach us how to become human. Uh, the, for me, the genius of Islam lies in the fact that it's a religion that uses humanity in order to teach humanity how to become human. And I think that's what's at the core of this book. Wonderful. Um, so you also talk in the early stages of the book about, you know, some of the prevalent or most dominant kind of introductory textbooks that we have available on Islam. Um, and, you know, while you show your debt to them, but, but you're also critical about some of the absences that you're trying to address in your own book. So could you tell us a bit, uh, share with, with our listeners a bit about what you find lacking? What is the sort of major problems that you see in current introductory books in Islam and how this book addresses that? Right. And, and, I, and I want to be very clear. I do not wish to be, you know, critical of the people who came before me. Uh, we, I and all of us owe a real debt to the people who wrote those uh, early text. You know, it's remarkable to think that before John Esposito wrote Islam, the Straight Path, there really wasn't anything like it. A book that attempted to, you know, put together in one volume an introduction that could be used uh, both to teach undergraduates and for uh, just ordinary people who were interested in Islam to, to learn uh, the basic concepts, ideas, and norms of the tradition. Uh, but what I've noticed, uh, and I don't think anybody can really deny this, is that almost invariably introductory books on Islam are focused on the five pillars. That, uh, And not just introductory books on Islam, chapters on Islam in world religions books, uh, 
the way in which that curriculum gets taught in uh, junior high schools and high schools. It's to focus on Islam as being about the ibadat, about the five ritual uh, actions that are considered uh, wajib by most Muslims. Uh, I'm not trying in my book, and I, and I hope it doesn't come off that way, to deny the importance of Sharia and the importance of ibadat for 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 many, in fact, for most Muslims. But I don't think that that's actually the center of Islam historically for most people. I think that, uh, you know, as I was telling somebody online recently, I came to Islam not because of Sharia, but because of uh, Ishq and Insaniyah. That's what I saw in Islam. That's what attracted me to it, love and humanity. And yet those books don't really go there. And of course, the other the other person that I seem to be being very critical of, and I think I'm more being critical of how he has been used by others, uh, is uh, this notion that comes largely from uh, Professor Talal Assad, that Islam is a discursive tradition uh, that is emerges out of a dialogue and an interaction with Quran and Sunnah. Uh, and I in no way deny that there is a discursive tradition within Islam. But I think that there's not only a discursive tradition within Islam, there's also an affectic tradition of love and what the late Shahab Ahmed calls an exploratory tradition. And that we've tended to privilege the uh, role of Sharia and that discursive tradition, which is largely an intellectual tradition uh, and a remarkable one, uh, over the tradition of love in Islam. And the example that I give in the book is one that I got in uh, as an undergraduate from Professor Azim Nanji, uh, which is a story from the corpus of poetry of Leyland Majnoon, where uh, Majnoon is explaining to his father why he is attracted to Layla, who is, by the standards of the culture, not an attractive person and not to the beautiful women he is invited to this party where there are also wonderful food and wonderful drink and wonderful utensils, including goblets for the wine made by the greatest artisans of Samarkand and Bukhara that are, you know, finely engraved and made. And at one point, Majnoon taps upon the, the goblet and says, Father, you are in love with the goblet, but I am in love with the wine, which we can read as sort of, well, real beauty is inside, not on the surface. But another way to look at it is we can think of that goblet as being the Sharia. Uh, it's the discursive and intellectual tradition that allows for a container to hold the real center of the religion, which is love. If we focus on the goblet and forget that what the goblet is designed for is to give us access to the wine, we're missing the point. Uh, from the standpoint of the Sufi tradition that takes that story and runs with it. Uh, and so I think that what I'm trying to get at here is not to say that what Marshall Hodgson calls Sharia-mindedness uh, is not important to Islam, but it's only one aspect. Uh, and uh, that that's that's where I'm going with this. For me, we, we treat traditions uh, too often that are about love and devotion as peripheral and secondary, 
to the discursive tradition. And I would argue that uh, it's really the other way around. The point of the discursive tradition is to provide access to uh, the wine that is, for me, the heart of Islam, that attracted me to the study of Islam in the first place. So you've already begun uh, talking about this, Vernon, uh, but perhaps, uh, you know, this book, of course, is not only an introduction to Islam, but it also very nicely lays out in the beginning stages the kind of um, theoretical models or categories or concepts that are informing your approach to this task. And you mentioned your debt to Shahab, the late Shahab Ahmed's uh, uh, What is Islam? Uh, but uh, could you perhaps elaborate a bit more about some of the key categories, concepts that informed your perspective, your orientation in this in this book from Shah Bamud's What is Islam? Absolutely. I mean, uh, first off, I'd like to say that I've been writing this book for a very long time. I'm not nearly as prolific as uh, many of my colleagues or many of my students. Uh, and so uh, I was already, uh, many of these concepts that I used in the book were ones that I was already thinking of before I read Shahab Ahmed's book. In fact, when I first found out about Shahab Ahmed's book, I thought, oh no, what if he's saying the things that I'm planning on eventually saying when my book finally gets done and comes out, particularly my sort of critique of uh, this notion of Islam as a discursive tradition, which I had talked about in some book reviews and other things along the way. But what I really got out of Shahab Ahmed and what I both learned from him and, and share from him is this idea that we need to recognize that uh, Islam is not simply the Sharia. Uh, that, that's at the core of, of what he's saying. And that there, I mean, the idea that, you know, one of the things that ties the Islamic world together is this uh, uh, Sufi poetry that uh, uh, connects uh, uh, as, as a kind of network and fiber uh, all these edges of the Islamic world. Uh, how can I put this? Uh, he has a series of six, is it six or seven questions at the beginning that he asked about defining Islam that, that make it complicated to get with. But let me go in a slightly different direction here. The, the key concept that I learned from him that I had not thought about before, and I think is absolutely brilliant, is this idea that Islam consists of a text, a pretext, and a context. Uh, and the study of Islam in the academy has focused on Islam as text. Uh, and what Shahab Ahmed says is that the text, the Quran and the Sunnah, assumes what he calls the pretext, the hakika, the reality from which all of that emerges, from which the Quran emerges, from which the prophet's uh, teachings emerge. It's what all of that points to. And then that then creates a context. And that context he beautifully describes as he describes Islam as a city and it has neighborhoods. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm, you know, using the same ones he would, but there's, you know, there's a Salafi neighborhood and there's an Ismaili neighborhood uh, and there's a ritual neighborhood. And some people would be comfortable in any of those neighborhoods and some people would uh, would would only go in, into some of them. But I love this idea of Islam as as a city that has different places within it, and yet it's still visible as a city. I guess for, for me, uh, as I stated earlier in the book, one of the major questions we have to ask about Islam is uh, how do we account for the unity uh, in the midst of all the diversity within Islam? Uh, 
earlier texts have attempted to say that that unity is in the Sharia, uh, Ahmed wants to say that that unity is in that pretext that the context points to, that the that both the text and the context which emerges out of that and includes not only Sharia and Sufi tariqahs, but also Sufi poetry and Islamic philosophy uh, and uh, Kavali and uh, 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 Alevi music, that all of these things are part of the context. And that throughout the history of Islam, there have been those people who have said, the only place where we can be sure that we are getting to the pretext is from the text. And then there have been other people who have said, well, we can't just get there from the text. We can also get there from uh, the context as well. Uh, and then there have been people who said that we can get to the truth through things like aesthetic beauty or romantic love. And all of those things are Islam because they all see themselves as trying to explore the tradition to get to that pretext which is the source of the revelatory event of the Prophet and the Quran. And I think that uh, Shahab Afid's done a really great service in, in, in giving us that. And by the way, I think that the, that notion of text, context, and pretext is also useful in looking at other traditions that have important textual traditions within them, like Buddhism, uh, various forms of the Hindu tradition, uh, and yet, there hasn't been much uh, discussion about that that I've seen in discussions of his book. And I hope that people over the years will begin to look at those concepts as ways of the study of not just Islam, but also religion as well. Now let's get to some of the um, sort of uh, um, thematics of the book, the kind of topics that you deal with uh, really in brilliant detail throughout the book. I wanted to begin with this very interesting move that you made early on in the book that your point of departure is not so much the five pillars, which is a very common kind of tendency, both in introductory textbooks and also in intro service to Islam as well, but rather in uh, the uh, roots of religion, or usul uh, the three. Right. Um, could you tell us a bit about that move and, and, and how that sort of helps you orient the direction in which you want to take readers in this book? Right. And I'm, I, you know, my, my, I have to acknowledge my debt here to... Uh, 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 Abdulaziz Sachedina, who was my uh, uh, professor in graduate school, and the very first course that I took from him, he oriented things around the Usul Adin, uh, and it always stuck with me because the advantage of talking about the Usul Adin as the way of trying to understand Islam as a diverse tradition. I mean, one of the early titles of this book uh, was going to be uh, Islam's Diverse. Uh, is that the three Usuladin that are shared by Sunni and Shia alike, Tawheed or the unity of God, Nabuwa, belief in prophets, and Qiyamah, belief in a day of judgment, are clearly universally shared by everyone that calls himself a Muslim. I mean, there may be rare exceptions, but I haven't found... Uh, either traditions or even individuals who deny that those three concepts are central. However, those three concepts are deeply multivalent. So that Tawheed has a range from Ibn Taymiyyah's deity, who is, you know, separate from the cosmos and uh, from creation, 
and that we uh, show our service to uh, through uh, obedience to the notion of Vadatul Vajud associated with Ibn Arabi, that uh, everything is somehow exists in a state of mystical oneness with God. Both of those are Tawheed. Uh, both of those are really different interpretations of Tawheed, but it allows us to say all Muslims believe in Tawheed, but look at the range of ways in which people express that Tawheed. Similarly with Nabuah. For some people, the Prophet Muhammad, uh, this is not my term, it's someone else's, and I don't mean it to, uh, 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 flippantly, is almost a divine uh, telephone receiver. What he does, his one miracle, is he gets the Quran, and he reveals the Quran to us, and he is, in a sense, the human lawgiver, and that's who he is. But for many other Muslims, I would argue historically for most Muslims, Muhammad is important because he's the Habib Allah. He's the light that was the first thing created by Allah. He is, in a sense, uh, the real uh, focus of that hadith I quoted before. I created everything for you, Muhammad, my beloved, and you for me. So that we have this range of ways in which people understand the Prophet Muhammad, from the lawgiver who, you know, we have to be careful about uh, how we uh, approach his tomb, so much so that the Wahhabis at one point, you know, wanted to destroy the tomb of the Prophet Muhammad because they saw it as dangerously leading to shirk, to people who see uh, the Prophet and uh, as someone that uh, leads us into the ocean of mystery that is Tawheed. And the same with Kiyama. For some people, the descriptions of the day of judgment and paradise in the Quran are absolutely literally true. For others, they are allegorical. In the Bektashi tradition, that allegory extends to the fact that the Kiyama is going on all the time uh, and that people who have become human uh, are living in paradise already, uh, even though they are within time and space. So that we have this really complicated uh, way of, of, of looking at what these ideas mean. It's the multivalence of these concepts that I think is most useful, because we don't throw anybody out of Islam. I think that one of the real problems with uh, teaching uh, uh, in the academy is that, you know, we're trying to teach about Islam. We're, in most cases, we're not trying to convert people. We're not trying to proselytize. Uh, how do we decide what the real Islam is. I think there's been a tendency to teach Sunni Islam and Sunni Islam as represented in the Sharia tradition as the real Islam and compare everything else to that as if that's the essence and everything else is, uh, is peripheral. I'm trying to find a way to be able to see all of these different manifestations of how to be Muslim as truly Islamic. Uh, and one way to do that is by beginning with multivalent categories like the Asuladeen, which is why I've done that. Uh, I've built my courses around this for the past 30 years. One of the things that I found particularly productive about this book, and uh, I think uh, really is an important uh, intervention, uh, is the focus that it uh, shows on um, Shiism and Sufism as well, but especially Shiism, uh, which of course I think is definitely a major lack in the Sunni-centric uh, 
uh, I mean, uh, Islamic studies more broadly speaking, uh, even scholarship, but especially when it comes to the introductory course or these textbooks and so on. Um, and this comes up throughout the book, in your book, in multiple chapters. So there is no one chapter that I can refer to, but it happens throughout. Um, could you perhaps share with our listeners a bit, maybe a couple of examples of how Shiism and Sufism, and in general, sort of what you're calling the ritual and the affective aspects of Islam, are given uh, center stage uh, in this book? Maybe a couple of examples and why that is such an important uh, intervention for you in terms of this book. Sure, absolutely. And uh, I'd like to begin by saying that I think the reason I wound up here is I was, uh, I, I view myself as uniquely lucky in that when I was an undergraduate, the first person I studied Islam with in an Islam course was uh, the great Ismaili star scholar, Azim Nanji, who encouraged me to go study with Abdulaziz Sachedina, a 12er scholar. Uh, and so my major mentors have never been people who believed that the Sunni tradition is the center of Islam. Uh, and so uh, I think that that's been really a blessing for me, because then when I finally went abroad to study for the first time in a Muslim-majority environment, and I got to Pakistan, things were not as they would have seemed had I not studied with people like that. Uh, for one thing, I discovered that uh, everybody sees that Imam Hussein is the hero of Karbala. Uh, there is a little tiny, tiny minority of people who look at Yazid positively, but they are really on the margins of Islam. Uh, Imam Hussein is beloved by everyone, as is uh, Hazrat Ali uh, ibn Abu Talib. When I was in uh, Pakistan, I had a colleague, Abbas Hussain, uh, who is a really remarkable teacher. And uh, he, you know, he asked the, the question that, that he thinks was, you know, we really have not asked enough in Islamic studies is, why does Ali have such an important role in the Islamic world, not only among Shias, but among Sunni Muslims as well? Why is he in Central Asia, Shahi Mardan? Why is he in Turkey, Shai Evliya? Uh, why is it that uh, Sunni Stupi orders quote the Hadith about, you know, all of the Quran is contained in the Basmala and all of the Basmala in Fatiha and all of Fatiha is contained in the Basmala and all of the Basmala is contained in the letter B and all of that is contained in the dot in the letter B and I am that dot. That's just not a Shia statement. That's pretty well been universally accepted by the people for whom Sufi poetry and the notion of Adatul Vajud uh, has been a part of, of their Islam. And so for me, it's not just a matter of including the Shias as important because they become separate communities uh, who have a relationship with Ali. It's how it points to the role of Ali throughout the larger Islamic world. Uh, and in some ways, that's been, you know, the thread I followed as my own research starts in Pakistan and then goes to Central Asia and then goes to Turkey, that this devotion to Ali as a way of demonstrating love for the prophet uh, uh, 
uh, again, something I learned from uh, another one of my teachers in Pakistan, uh, uh, Karar Hussein, you know, we asked the question of uh, what is, why do we have to love Ali and Muhammad, or why do we love Ali and Muhammad, is that how do we show love for Allah, right? Uh, God, does God really need our, our our love in that way? But if you want to demonstrate love for Allah, demonstrate love for those whom he loved most, and whom did he love most, according to most of the tradition? The Prophet Muhammad, who is Habib Allah. And who did the Prophet Muhammad love most? Ali ibn Abu Talib, according to lots of hadith and lots of tradition and lots of poetry and lots of things that most Muslims have historically believed. And who did Ali love the most? Well, he loved Hassan and Hussein. So that this idea that love and devotion to the Shi'i Imams uh, is crucial to Islam is caught up immediately in both Tawheed and Nabuwa. And it makes its way into the rest of the tradition through the ubiquitousness of the Sufi tradition, which too often we want to reduce to only people who are members of formal tariqahs. But I would argue that for most of the history of Islam, the idea that you know what it is to be a Muslim included for most people a both a mystical notion of Tawheed and tied to that the notion that Islam required and was rooted in devotion to the Prophet and to his family, and in a, and building on to that his family, his spiritual family of the of the Sufi peers who were his successors in his lineage, and that that's part of the of the the. DNA that connects the Islamic world over the centuries. One of the uh, misimpressions that I would not want listeners to get is that although this book does make an argument about looking at Islam beyond the law, beyond the text, uh, it actually has some really fascinating discussions on uh, Islamic law, on the Sharia, on the Quran and the textual traditions and so on. Um, so I thought it would be interesting uh, for you to reflect a bit uh, with our listeners how you then engage with these kinds of topics, the law, textual traditions uh, in a book that is making a case for looking at Islam beyond these traditions. I thought your 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 uh, uh, examination and your uh, uh, way of dealing with these topics was really interesting and, and productive. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about that. Yeah, thank you. And, and it's one of the things that I tried really hard to deal with in this book, because I didn't want this to be seen as an argument that Sharia doesn't matter or that Sharia isn't important. Uh, Again, I come back to that notion that if a tradition source, if its pretext is can be allegorized as as wine, uh, as something that produces a change in consciousness and experience, what what contains the wine? How how do we get access to it? Uh, the idea that there are certain practices that have been taught to human beings that help them to become more human uh, is really central, I think, to, uh, to, the, to the entire tradition. Uh, it's, it's a matter, though, of trying to understand that, you know, why have Muslims stopped five times or three times a day, depending on, you know, the tradition, in order to uh, uh, ritually remember Allah? Uh, it's because that has all kinds of 
uh, what should be positive impacts on human beings. Uh, it teaches them discipline. It uh, pulls them out of dunya momentarily to think about who they really are. Fasting uh, teaches people to not only uh, discipline themselves, but also to uh, recognize if they are well off what it's like to be hungry and to have empathy for the hungry. The giving of zakah uh, gets people to be able to let go of the things that they think that they own but are really not theirs because ultimately everything is God's. That the Sharia is there in part to talk about a clock. Uh, it's also, it, it does have a, a social function in that it allows the notion of, uh, of, of how do we construct a society. But I think one of the mistakes that gets made is that because we have used the translation of Sharia to mean Islamic law, we tend to think that it was somehow state law, that it was like uh, the law of a modern nation state. And really, the Sharia is better described as a body of scholarly discourse about how we should behave in the world. And it was never uh, designed to be the law of a state. And I know that there are romantic movements in the modern world that want to establish Muslim governments based on Sharia law. But that's not, you know, prior to colonialism, that wasn't how Sharia functioned within Islamic societies. Uh, as I say in my book, it's much more like Jewish halakha than it is like the law of a modern secular nation state. Uh, but the other element of this is, is that we, if we focus only on Sharia and don't look at what I consider the two partner concepts that go with it, which are a clock and a dab, that ethics and proper comportment are connected to Sharia. The point of the Sharia on the social level is to eventually to become a person who behaves well towards others. I spend a lot of time in the text talking about the Alevi Bektashi community because they are an outlier in that they do not consider the Sharia to be an important part of Islam. Uh, they, in a sense, raise Taraka uh, to, the, to, to, to the most important level. But what I think happens uh, for them is that the, they have taken the notion of Sharia and said that in terms of ibadat, what we need to learn to do is to be praying all the time from the heart. And in terms of mu'amalat, what we need to learn to do is to become masters of our tongues, masters of our hands, and masters of our bodies. Uh, and as I look at that, it seems that, you know, that's really what you know, is underlying social Sharia law. It's to get people to behave in ways that are ethical towards each other. Uh, so that, that's basically what I'm doing with it. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of, uh, I, yeah. yeah. The, the, the other thing that this book does in terms of both its conceptual argument and also what it actually does in terms of how it introduces Islam to, to undergraduates, uh, um, by the way, one thing that I really loved about this book is the way that it sort of goes between topics in the same chapter. Like at one point you talk about the Quran and then you go into Halaj in that same chapter. So one really gets a sense of the what one might call the multi 
disciplinarity of Islam itself as a tradition rather than having the law chapter, the Quran chapter, the Sufism chapter, everything is quite integrated in these different chapters. But what I wanted to ask you about is the other uh, sort of very productive thing this book does is that it really questions our dominant notions of what is the center and what is the periphery. And there are multiple examples of that, but I thought we maybe we'll pick one example that I found particularly fascinating, and it came towards the end of the book, um, the latter part of the book on the Elavi Biktashi uh, tradition. Um, could you perhaps share a bit about uh, why that becomes such a an important tradition for you in this in this book, and how you sort of try to reorient our conceptions of the periphery and the and the center, the margins and the center? Well, you know, it's a huge topic, but let, let me start. I mean. Uh, back in the 70s, I came across a, a, a phrase from an Italian anarchist who said, let the margins be the center. Uh, and I always try to keep that sort of, you know, pasted at the front of my consciousness that, uh, you know, I started graduate school in the late 70s when feminism was really making its way finally into the academy. Uh, and for so long, women had been seen at the periphery. And yet, you know, before I went to the field for the first time, you know, I had been exposed to enough people who taught me that if I wanted to understand Shiism in Karachi in the 20th century, I had to address women's piety. No one would have thought in the 1950s or the 1960s that you had to do that. The things that people consider peripheral, when you move them to the center, I've, I've also told students, because I use Marshall Hodgson's uh, The Venture of Islam in all of my courses, uh, that uh, Hodgson's book isn't just a history of the Islamic world, it's, it's a world history, but with Baghdad at the center rather than Paris or London. Uh, when we move our centers, we see things in different ways. Uh, now, why the Alavi Bektashi tradition as a place to move our consciousness to and say, what does Islam look like if we put that at the center? Uh, when I first came back from Central Asia, I was spending time in Turkey, uh, and it was the International Day of Women, and uh, all of the sort of lefty parties uh, had been moved to a particular neighborhood in Ankara where they were doing their demonstrations and stuff. And I saw these uh, students who were uh, all dressed in black and playing balamas and singing songs that were about uh, Hazrat Ali and Halaj. And I, asked my fiance, who is now my uh, my wife, what is this? And he says, well, that's the Alavi musical tradition. Uh, and I felt like I was home. First off, as a musician, uh, the Alavi musical tradition is just so incredibly emotive uh, and reminds me of, among other things, Delta Blues. And uh, I just fell in love with the music of musicians like uh, Sabah Dakaraz and, uh, uh, and, and Arasa. But I also became fascinated by the Alavi tradition who were, and again, it's difficult because there are some Alavis who deny that they are Muslims, but the majority of the Alavi tradition is rooted in an understanding of love for the Prophet Muhammad, love for Ali, love for their peers, and this notion of insaniyah, which they explicitly state, the point of our way, of our path is to learn how to become fully human. And that implies also standing for social justice, which is why so many of the Alevis were sort of standing on the left politically, standing with trade unions, standing for peace and justice in the world. 
And here I am looking at this tradition and seeing how even in its you know pre-modern texts is taking the ideas about who the prophet Muhammad was and who the peers of the tradition are and what their values are and looking at it in ways that have an ideal human being that is very much contains universal humanistic uh, uh, images that you have to live a life of self-sacrifice, that you have to live a life of empathy, that you have to treat men and women as equals. Uh, and so I was drawn to this as a kind of Islam and had all of the values of a clock and a daub that are attached to more Sharia-compliant forms of Islam, but without having Sharia at the center. And so that's why I was drawn to that. Uh, and I think it, you know, it really gets us to have to think about, well, if we define Islam in terms of five pillars, the fact that the Alevis don't say namaz, that they don't keep the Ramadan fast, that most of them don't go on the Hajj, how are they Muslims? And they are Muslims in their love for God, in their love for the Prophet, and their love for humanity. Now, if I was going to change anything in the book now that I've learned more, is that many of the things in the chapters on Alevis that I thought were unique to them, I have since found are many of the same stories uh, uh, and anecdotes in other Alid Sufi traditions within Anatolia. Uh, and I would uh, direct people to Ifer Karakaya Stump's wonderful work on this, uh, that those ideas are really part of a shared worldview. And I would argue that across Eurasia, that most Muslims, uh, and maybe even now, what it meant to be a Muslim was to have a view of Tawheed that was rooted to some extent in a notion of Vedatul Vajud, that was rooted in an Islam that included a strong belief in the love of both the Prophet and of Ali, and saw that uh, Sufism was a reality that was important for the creation of uh, uh, of, of good human beings. Uh, and I find that in other traditions, in the Rafai tradition, for example. And so I think that looking at Islam and seeing it in that way, I kind of undercut my own teaching because in the last chapter, I actually used the term mainstream Islam to talk about that kind of Islam. An Islam that accepts the validity of the Sufi tradition, accepts the validity uh, and the necessity of love for the Prophet and for Ali, and accepts a view of Tawheed that is more like that of Ibn Arabi and Halaj than it is like Ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I, I'm not trying to construct a new center, but looking, it just so happens, and this is one of the things that I also get from Shahaba. I think Shahaba often saying a similar thing that for a long swath of Islam, those basic ideas were shared by the great majority of Muslims. Uh, one of my, the person that I studied uh, Ottoman Turkish with uh, once told me that if you wanted to be considered uh, an educated Ottoman gentleman in the 19th and 20th centuries, you had to be able to write a, a, a commentary on the Quran, a commentary on the Masnavi, and a commentary on Ibn Arabi. That's not what we tend to think of as uh, the mainstream of Islam. 
But if we think of Islam, that that's somehow the mainstream, and Islam where where the Masnavi and Ibn Arabi are not peripheral things, but the ideas in those texts are ideas that are present at a popular level in songs, in poetry, in uh, in ziarats, then that's a very different view of Islam than if we start with Sharia and the Ibadat as the real essence of Islam. Teaching Humanity, an Alternative Introduction to Islam by Professor Vernon Shubel, uh, published by Pelgrave Macmillan in 2023. Um, Thank you so much, Vernon, for this uh, outstanding and really thought-provoking book that I hope uh, will be used uh, considerably in the classroom across college campuses uh, in North America and uh, hopefully beyond as well. And thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights about this book. Thank you so well, much. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. Absolutely. So this was my conversation with Professor Vernon Schubel about his wonderful new book, Teaching Humanity. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS, that is New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareem, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.